clock is proclaiming that it's creature o'clock. So ring that buzzer. It sounds like a lion roar. Roar! And open the door to join us for the 46th meeting of the Animal Fan Club. I'm a goose that does not appreciate being chased. Meredith. And I'm a wandering spermatophore awaiting the presence of an appropriate ovipore. Mike. And we meet every week at our clubhouse we like to call the Dalmatian Station. To talk about our favorite animals. Where we lack in expertise, we make up for an unbridled enthusiasm and childlike wonder. Wow. So saddle up that miniature horse and hold on tight for the furriest, fin-filled, and feathered podcast in all of the kingdom animalia. Mike, you're so full of wonder today. I am, Meredith. Ugh. I can't wait to see how this wonder translates into your creature feature. Yeah, it's definitely present in my creature feature, I have to say. Oh, goody. Yeah, what you... How was your week in animals? You know, fairly standard. I did get to hang out. Um, I got to meet my friend Erin's lovely pets. She, I mean, this could be an addition of sturdy pet names, but she has a sweet little kind of like tortoise shell kitty cat named um, Martha Washington and then a kind of black labish pit kind of Tyson-y mixed dog um, named Mary Todd. Uh. And they were very sweet. It was just like really nice to like meet some animals in the flesh. But then last night I happened to be watching the new season of Pen15. Oh yeah, we definitely have to talk about this. Which just came out um, on Hulu. And I've only gotten through the first episode at this point, but they're like at this pool party. And it's like this group of like the young boys that they're kind of like adjacent to the two main character girls are adjacent to but these boys at this pool party they weren't swimming but they were pouring over this like homemade booklet about weasels and it was like the funniest thing they like opened it up and there's like cut out pictures of weasels and like like seventh grade infographics it was like the cutest thing and so something i would have done at that age and i was (laughs) as if this show does not have my number already it Those little boys and their weasel book. I can't. (laughs) Meredith, I have so much to say about that show. Like, (laughs) I I have never laughed harder. And I've never felt more seen by anything that has been on the television. Like, it has the number of of all of the people our age. It just has our number. That is exactly what that experience was like of childhood and I feel very represented. I know nothing has like and this has been the experience of so many friends of mine that I went through this exact experience this middle school like junior high experience with them so then getting to like share it with them and then have them text me back like oh my gosh this is bringing up memories I would have never (laughs) recovered had it not been for this show. The one that threw my friend Mallory over the edge was like the names on the gym the gym class t-shirts like we all had to write our last names right on them (laughs) right well it's I don't know it's just everything about it I mean where to even begin I can't give away uh, season two since you haven't yet seen it yeah and I haven't really seen the whole thing either my the way that I really experienced the show because you know I'm kind of flighty I can't really sit down for anything anymore you know yeah but but at home, I see it because my roommate has it on, mm-hmm. and he's just over there cackling. And any time I hear even, like, a sentence from it, it's just like, <sighs> this shit is the funniest shit ever. And then, like, I'll sit down and catch an episode, you know? So I haven't seen the whole second season. That's my disclaimer. Mm-hmm. But I have seen a couple of the episodes twice already. <laughs> <laughs> You have to watch them twice because it's, like, one of those things. It's, like, oh, it has to. it takes a few viewings to absorb the amount of details that are in there that are put there for people like us that have strong memories from that time, strong traumas from that time. <laughs> yeah. No spoilers, but in season two, there is a school drama production that happens. <gasps> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because Maya, Maya Erskine, who's one of the 
creators of the show and one of the stars of the show. Her father is Mm -hmm. a very famous jazz drummer. This is my favorite fact in the world. So to cast Al Borland as her dad, as her character's dad in the show, (laughs) and to give him that goatee, because her father has a goatee, Mm -hmm. is just like the funniest shit ever. And like such a nod to you know, the hep jazz cats who are aware of such a thing. It's so true. But yeah. And to make him be the drummer for a Steely Dan (laughs) tribute band. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I know. It's hilarious. I mean, dude was, dude's played with everybody. Like people, he's like a Titan. Like he's traveled the world, you know, Oh, he and played with literally everyone. He's from that era of like jazz and jazz fusion that I, it's like my bread and butter. I live and die by that stuff. (laughs) He's on some of my all-time, like, favorite albums. Right. What was that, like, 70s and 80s kind of, yeah, like you said, the jazz fusion period, where they were just making records constantly, like all these high-powered people. There was actually money in the industry, you know, so everybody was just collaborating nonstop and traveling. and Yeah. Thank goodness. (sighs) Um, Well. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I guess (laughs) my week in animals, Meredith was just thinking a lot about birds. This other project that I'm working on that I'm going to talk more about soon because it's releasing soon. It's a narrative. It's set in a dystopian future in New York. One of the characters lives on Roosevelt Island and his name is the Cardinal. So that's bird related, right? Yes. Yes. State bird of Ohio. State bird of Ohio. Correct. (laughs) So we went to Roosevelt Island to film some like social media content in a socially distanced fashion. Sure. And that was just yesterday that we shot it. And so I'm still thinking about cardinals and the experience in Roosevelt Island and like the presence of all the bird poop. Yes. But generally less birds. We're kind of in that sort of liminal stage where there's a lot of bird poop, but not a lot of birds because they've all started flying south for the winter. Right. We are in migration season in in the eastern part of the United States for sure. Yeah. And that's when it hit me like, yo. It's October. We're there. Yeah, the spookiest of months. Ooh, we'll have to do some fun, like, spooky creatures for Halloween. Oh, that's a really good idea. All right. Well, um, I guess on that note, do you want to just jump right into it? I would love to. All right. Well, let's kick it off with the old taxonomy cheer. Ready? Okay. Texana you. Texana we. Texana who? Texana me. Kingdom. Animalia. It's not called Stock Market Fan Club. Philo. Arthropoda. They're inside out, no bones within. Class. Insecta. Hexapods. Order. Lepidoptera. Butterflies and moths. Family. Erebidae, the largest moth family. Genus. Eutethesiza, a genus of tiger moths. Species. Ornatrix, the Bella moth, a.k.a. the ornate moth, a.k.a. the rattlebox moth. Just have to say, this is not a visual medium. I loved how you were like exploring your wings <laughs> as you were. I was like watching you kind of like have some wing moments as you were delivering that taxonomy cheer. It was really like embodying that moth. Thanks. I have to say that one of the great singers that I've known well in my life, Barb Younger. She and I have talked before about how if you just physicalize the lyrics, like if you just put the lyrics in your body and represent them in a way, uh-huh. like make it also a dance. Yes. It makes it better to nail it every time. Uh, it's much I, easier to nail it. I highly agree with that. Yeah. And you did nail it the first time. Yeah. I'm not sure that I'm saying this genus right, but we'll, you know, we'll get there. We'll, yeah. this is a perfect lead into the tax facts. Let's hear them. Kingdom Animalia, Phylum Arthropoda, that's... Insects, crustaceans, etc. Spiders, clarissata. The class insects, hexapods, they have six legs. I was actually kind of surprised that butterflies and moths are true insects. I was perhaps expecting them to be a sort of different arthropod. Yeah, I guess I hadn't put that together either. Yeah. No, I have presented on a butterfly before. Right. But definitely worth noting for sure. Right, right. Well, the Lepidoptera is the order, which is butterflies and moths. Mm -hmm. And then I feel like I heard somewhere at some point in my life, you know, something about you can go to Senegal and you can go out into the bush and you can take a lamp and you can put it in essentially like a moth trap. You can attract moths to it and trap them Uh and find five species that no one has described before. (gasps) Like the biodiversity of moths and butterflies, et cetera, is just 
we've only really scratched the surface, I guess you could say. Yeah. Is my understanding. And in this, there's the order, Lepidoptera, and then the superfamily, Nuctuoidae, Nuctuid, Nuctuid, Latin for night owl or owlet moths, oh. has 70,000 described species and is the largest of the Lepidopteran superfamilies. So, like, already we're just, like, there's a whole lot of species. Yeah, I'm already, like, this <laughs> is lost. This is not even a family. This is a super family of the order, mm-hmm. and it has 70,000 described species. Ugh. So, like, we have a lot to break down. You know, this isn't, like, one of the creatures where you go, like, family, genus, species, and it's all the same. Yeah, like bison, bison, bison. Right, like bison, bison, bison. Yeah, the order is very complicated. And I thought it was interesting that the superfamily wasn't even a division between butterflies and moths. It was like owlet moths only are in right. the superfamily. You know what I mean? So lots of further Lepidoptera lines of inquiry are open. They're open, everybody. Then we get to the family Eribidae, which includes the underwings, the litter moths, tiger, lichen, and wasp moths, tusuk moths, piercing moths, micro Tuoid moths, snout moths, and zales. Zales? Like Yeah, like the diamonds. Diamonds are forever. <laughs> exactly. No, I think that's De Beers. Excuse me. Yeah, I don't know. I think Zales is I, I don't even remember. I feel like there was a Zales that I drove by. I think there was a Zales in our mall, probably. Yeah. Then the subfamily Actinae, which has about eleven thousand species. Then there's a tribe, Actini. Then there's a subtribe, Calamorphina, so that probably has to do with how they're shaped. Mm-hmm. And then genus, Uthethsitha, which is a <laughs> genus of tiger moths. Like, this classification system is bonkers. You know what I mean? I it's just so, like, like I'm so are, in over my head right now, I can't even. Yeah, I know. It, that's exactly <laughs> how I feel. It's Insects are this way, though, because they're so... There are so many of them. I think maybe that's what's interesting about my perspectives on taxonomy now, the Linnaean taxonomy, is that it's a system imposed on these natural structures. Right. And so it's perhaps a compromise, right? Yes. For like all the different things. It's ultimately a compromise, but it's a way of standardizing like life, you know? Right. But life has evolved in such various paths and in like such a significant way that it just like we've said before, it breaks down or it's perhaps cumbersome to use it to describe such species with such levels of distinction. Maybe there's other language that would be more beneficial. But again, like I, I'm not a lepidopterist, a lepidopterist. Lepidopterist. <laughs> a lepidopterist. No, I'm definitely not that. And I'm definitely not a lepidopterist, I think is how you would say it. A specialist yeah. in butterflies and moths. All right. So look, This genus of tiger moths, the way that it's distinguished from other genuses is that the palpiporect, which is to say that they are extending forward and they extend beyond the fronds, the antenna are ciliated, the forewings are long and narrow where the outer margin is short and somewhat erect, vein three from before angle of cell, vein four and five from angle, vein six from upper angle, and vein seven to ten from a short areole. Hind wing with vein five from above angle of cell, vein six and seven from upper angle, and vein eight from middle of cell. Mike. Meredith. Mike, what is that? It's describing their (laughs) wings as a way of distinguishing this genus of tiger moth from other tiger moths. (laughs) Oh my goodness. So our species, the Ornatrix, it resides in temperate Midwestern and Eastern North America, as well as through Mexico and other parts of Central America. Oh, cool. Unlike most moths, the Bella moth is diurnal, which means it's active during the daytime. Right. Yeah, because we normally we associate moths as like you turn the porch light on and you just see them flying around and right. so therefore might conclude, okay, moths are nocturnal, but this one is diurnal. Yeah, it's a daytime moth. So we're just going to start at the beginning of the life cycle. So there's an egg. It's spherical. It ranges in color from white to yellow. Mm-hmm. Then it hatches. The larva is orange and brown. And has irregular black bands on each segment of the body. The full-grown larvae are like one to one and a half inches in length. They lack verrucae, making them unlike most 
arctid larva. The larva is the caterpillar, okay? Let's just like, yeah. you know, conceptualize this in our understanding of butterflies and, and we'll clump them together with moths and just paint with broad strokes as we say very specific taxonomy. Yeah. Wait, what was the verruque there with that? What is the thing there without? So I looked it up. The dictionary definition is essentially like wart and it's specifically a type of wart generally. Uh, but I would say that it is a like wart-like structure or perhaps a raised structure. Okay. Then they pupate. The pupa are mostly black, but they're marked with irregular orange and brown bands, and they are usually covered with a loose layer of silk, which I love because draping Ooh. is in again. Yeah. And it's just like a <laughs> little like drape moment. Okay. And then after they emerge from their pupa phase the adults have a wingspan of about one and a quarter to one and three quarters inch. Mm-hmm. And then their wings range from yellow, red, pink, and orange to white. So they're very like brightly colored mm-hmm. and they contain irregularly spaced black dots. And then they have hind wings, which can be bright pink with a marginal black band. Yeah. I'm looking at a picture. I mean, they're gorgeous. They're really cool looking. Like the colors are very bright and kind of springy. It honestly, it seems like as like a textile, if it were a textile, this would like be all over skirts for women on like mod cloth. Yeah, it is. Moth cloth. <laughs> sure. It's definitely a very American craft moment. Yes. Print. They're really gorgeous though. They are. Now, Meredith, let me ask you though, if you were a predator and you were looking for a delicious treat and you saw that, what would your reaction be? I would probably think to stay away because I know bright colors often indicate a level of toxicity. It's like one of those aposmatic displays. Meredith, that is correct. That is some <laughs> ding, ding, ding. ding, ding, ding. The coloration is kind of like black and orange and red. I always think of those snakes, those like oh, yeah. venomous snakes that are that color. Mm-hmm. Like I associate those colors with like Maybe don't go near that. Yeah. Well, it's true of this moth. So during their larval stages, they feed on leguminous plants of the genus mm. Crotalaria, which are the rattle pods, which is where they get one of their names, the rattle pod moth. It's from the plant that they inhabit. And then the Crotalia, like Crotales. Exactly. Exactly. I know. The percussion instrument. I know. Yeah. So they're, I guess that they're even bell-shaped, probably. I think that would be a reasonable conclusion to draw if I was presented with three plants and I had to identify. <laughs> so these plants have pyrolyzidine alkaloid, or PA, compounds, which make them unpalatable to most predators. Mm-hmm. So these moths consume this PA compound, pyrolyzidine alkaloid compound, and synthesize it essentially, and then use that as a way to deter predators. Mm -hmm. But there are only so many pyrolazidine, I'm just going to say PA from now on, there are so many PAs that it becomes an extremely valuable resource because it's limited. So individual larvae will compete with one another to colonize an entire pod. But If they can't and they cannot get enough PAs, they will eat the leaves of the plant, which has less PAs, or they will even eat one another (gasps) to get the PAs that they need, like full Highlander style. There can be only one. I will kill you and I will take your power. (gasps) Whoa. So they like cannibalize. And this is when they're at the, like the pupa. This is pre-pupa because the pupa is the cocoon. Oh, right, right, right. So this is the larva stage, like the caterpillar stage. They're eggs. Gotcha. Caterpillars, cocoons, moths, essentially. Got it. Okay. So this is the larval stage, which is true of other insects as well. This larval, like the grub stage, you know, it Mm -hmm. kind of, the life cycle matches what we know. You know what I mean? So much metamorphosizing going on. A lot of metamorphosing going on. Now, when they're adult moths and they've incorporated this PA into their gorgeous collage (laughs) spiders and bats that capture them will quickly release them unharmed so this is actually like a life-saving situation so they just get like a tiny taste and they're like yeah they're like that's gross get out of here 
Oh, that's awesome. So they look super cute and they taste super bad. Yeah. Seems like a winning combo. And another fun thing about the larvae is that they might be able to recognize other larvae as kin because they're less likely to intrude upon siblings than they are non-siblings. So let's talk about fucking. Okay. Now, Meredith, you remember from your butterfly presentation that there was this process with the lek. Oh, yes. Where there would be a lecking arena, L-E-K-K-I-N-G. Yes. And that's where the butterflies would go and lek and compete and everything. So Yeah, the male butterflies essentially all hang out in a location and just, it's like a, it's like a, a nightclub mm. for butterflies and moths. I didn't see anything about a lecking arena, but I did see something about a similar level of sluttiness. Okay. And so the females will mate with several different males over their three to four week lifespan as adults. Mm-hmm. It's an average of three to four males, each of whom provides her with a spermatophore, which is like a little packet of sperm, mm-hmm. kind of like, here it is. Here's my packet of sperm. And she takes it and she tucks it away and she staves it. <laughs> she can receive up to 13 spermatophores. Such a specific number okay yes it's a prime number another prime number insects yeah, love yeah, yeah. prime numbers <laughs> so this spermatophore is more special than any of the other ones we've talked about before because the male will invest up to 11 percent of their body mass into the spermatophore and into it he will put his sperm obviously but also he will put nutrients and alkaloids these precious pas that oh. we talked about earlier So this entire spermatophore package containing sperm, nutrients, and alkaloids is called the nuptial gift. (laughs) And this is a process that's not unique to this creature, this nuptial gift process. This is a new general term. Okay. So the nutrients included in the nuptial gift allow the female to produce an average of 32 additional eggs. And the ladies don't really keep their gifts separate, but instead they kind of just allocate this PA into an admixture. So eggs tend to receive PAs from more than one male source, but in contrast, she will keep the sperm separate and typically only fertilizes her egg with the sperm of one male. Wow. I'm just trying to imagine like one where this process is taking place and like the levels of specificity at which it's happening, I, I cannot wrap my mind around this. Well, she uses musculature to channel the selected sperm through the chambers and constructs of her reproductive systems to the eggs. How do our muscles know what is sperm and what is an alkaloid? It's just insane. I mean, I guess I don't know, Meredith. I can't imagine being in that position where I'd have to separate the two, you know, in yeah. any circumstance, I guess. And like in right, right. internally, like I'm not quite sure how I would even begin that process. <laughs> and I, you know, I bet she doesn't know either. It just kind of happens. Yeah, that's probably right. <laughs> so the courtship starts at dusk. The ladies will release a pheromone in short pulses. Mm-hmm. So as the males get closer, they can get close range orientation cues. Okay. The male flutters around her and thrusts two peculiar tufts of scales from his corymata, which are two spherical structures by his genital organs. Two peculiar tufts of scales. That's exactly what I said, yes. And it releases a specific scent, which the female receives and mating commences. So copulation can take up to 12 hours. The male takes about two hours to transfer the nuptial gift, and the rest of the time is exclusively for alkaloid transfer. These bugs sound like fucking Teslas, yo. Like, for real? (laughs) I know. It's so intense. And so the female kind of has a plan for these alkaloids. I bet she does. She allocates about a third of them to her ovaries, where they're used to confer protection to the eggs. And then uh, females do compete with other females as opposed to males competing with other males. And they will engage in female pheromone chorusing. (gasps) Hold on. (laughs) (laughs) Which I guess is a way for us to talk about Pen15 again. (laughs) The body, the life, the earth, the mist. The body, the life, the earth, the mist. There's nothing like adolescent suburban kids in the mid-90s doing some sort of witchcraft. Oh, or like getting into like new age. I was a child 
who loved pure moods. I'm just going to say it. I guess it is a thing to have to explain to an older generation that, like, getting into Enya after you've seen the video game Mist is very different than, like, the two of them happening at the same time. Hot takes. Okay, hold on. We got to backtrack. Female pheromone chorus scene? Yes. So they essentially they're singing in chorus, but instead of, like, producing sounds with their vocal cords, they're just producing pheromones en masse? Is that... Uh, yeah, I mean, that's kind of my understanding of it. It's almost like they're flooding, like, flooding the area with their pheromones, I guess? Does... Yes, but this relates back to what we were saying earlier about the females competing with one another. So it's like, if you put a bunch of girls together, they will initiate pheromone response sooner they will continue release with less interruption over a longer period of time and they will perform the release with faster abdominal pumping than observed in isolated females okay (laughs) so again it's the females are competing as opposed to the males are competing generally i see okay do you have any other moth questions oh my gosh did you come across anything I guess the answer to this is probably, like, they're just different species. But, you know, like, what are some of the main differences between moths and butterflies? Didn't research that at all. I have to say what turned me on to this is that when I was looking up the name for the start of the episode and I wanted to do a spermatophore joke, Mm -hmm. I learned about the nuptial gift. (laughs) And so I was like, well, clearly I have to research a creature that gives the nuptial gift. Yeah. And that's what led me down this road. So it was more spermatophore related curiosity than moth and butterfly curiosity gotcha some curiosity i have is that like with these nuptial gifts you know how like for different anniversaries it's like the paper anniversary and like the the gold anniversary and bronze or whatever it's like one anniversary is like the alkaloid anniversary the other anniversary is like the sperm anniversary spermiversary that's an interesting question I think that we have to reconsider time because these creatures only live for like 30 days. Exactly. So maybe it's less about anniversaries and more just about times, like first date, second date, third date, fourth date sort of thing. Sure. In the first spermatophore, you offer like sperm and alkaloid and some paper. (laughs) And then like on the second date, some sperm, some PAs, some cotton. The third, you add some leather or maybe some crystal. Maybe the fourth one, you bring some fruit and flowers or um, an appliance. <laughs> and the fifth one, some silverware. The appliance anniversary. Love this. Love this for them. Yeah, it's really romantic. It really is. The nuptial gift. How sweet. The nuptial gift. The thing about it, too, that's so silly is that there's this substance, this alkaloid substance, and it's just their management of it is really very impressive. I know. And it just feels like so silly. This organism seems to be based around this specific chemical process, which I guess is true of most organisms, which Mm -hmm. causes further reflection and, you know, a sort of dissociative state that I welcome in this uncertain time. Where would we be without the ability to disassociate? (laughs) (sighs) Also, too, this had me thinking, like when you were talking at the beginning about like just the vast amount of biodiversity contained within like the order and all the way down through the taxonomy and the level of species. You know how like some areas of study are considered more difficult than others? I mean, to take a really silly example, only like the top performing dentists go on to become like orthodontists. Sure. I wonder what that's like in the creature research world. Like, is there one particular kind of animal that attracts or requires like more I don't know like a higher degree of intellect or I don't know you know what I mean yeah or like being more skilled in a particular area or just having a knack for certain things hearing you say this makes me think of my sister who's a doctor Mm -hmm. and she went to an Ivy League school for undergrad and while there she worked at the bug lab Mm. the entomology lab she still talks about the person that she worked with who mm-hmm. was like the supervisor or whatever the the person in charge with a level of reverence for just like this is one of the smartest people I have ever met yeah this is an incredible field that is so complicated and like so all over the place in terms of the amount of knowledge that you have and just how brilliant this guy was she still talks about it and i think 
as I'm understanding this more and more and these kind of small creatures with like lots of little differences and lots of very complex systems Mm -hmm. because like, sure, this system had to develop, but then also somebody had to figure this out and that's crazy. Right. Like, you know, somebody's down there like figuring out which sperm she's channeling through her constructs of the reproductive system. You know what I mean? It's like bonkers. Yeah. So... I, uh, yeah, I just have to say that in general, I think the study of insects and the study of those types of creatures like arthropods is becoming very fascinating to me Mm -hmm. because it is such a world that I know nothing about. And it's so freaking vast. Just the amount of species contained therein is mind boggling. I literally couldn't read a sentence of what I just said without encountering a new vocabulary word yeah. that I had absolutely no idea what the hell it meant. Yeah. It's ooh, it's a crazy butterfly world out there. Yeah. Moth world. Mothra. Well, Meredith, do you want to hop into our cocoons and pupate? Yeah. I've been needing that lately. It's like a spa day. Oh, my God. Perfect. I love a spa day. Me too. How's your week, Danny? Well, Andy, things are going pretty good, but I'm having a little trouble finding the right gift for Sammy's birthday. They're just so dapper. It's hard to find the right gift. Well, have you considered Brand Clubby's new endeavor in timepieces? Kronos and Radula, pocket washes for distinguished bivalves? I have not. This is the first I'm hearing of Kronos and Radula, pocket watches for distinguished bivalves. Oh, Well, my cousin works for Brand Clubby as a technician on the web portal, which is why I'm so up to the minute on their product line. That sounds like a great job. The benefits package is amazing. I'm jellyfish jealous. (laughs) (laughs) Well, anyway, Cronus and Radula, pocket watches for distinguished bivalves, is a complete line of luxury timepieces made by Scaphopod Artisans. Each watch is designed with a proprietary, shell-friendly case, trademark, that allows the chronometer to fit snugly between the mantle and the pallial sinus. Wow! And I bet Brain Clubby continues their tradition of inclusivity by offering a range of sizes and styles. You know that's the truth. All extant bivalves have no less than four design options. Amazing! I'm going to hop on the Brain Clubby web portal today to check out their offering. Use code TikTok25 for a whopping 25% off at checkout. That's the most generous discount I've ever heard of in the web portal. Well, hurry. Designs are produced in short runs, but new designs are always in the pipeline. Collect them all. Well, we've made it back to another. Delightful segment of Sturdy Pet Names. You know, Meredith, I don't mean to so quickly open the production doors, but I'll just say when we're recording this, we don't play the bumpers. We just sing our memory of them. And that one in particular, I always remember the lyrics from the demo, which was like, ooh, we're talking about Sturdy Pet Names just like twice. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. And that's not what the words actually are. Mm -hmm. So every time you sing that, it's like a joyous memory to me of like, oh, right. That's what we ended up recording. (laughs) Like, I just don't remember the lyrics from it at all. Some of these, I will say, like, we go back and I I hear them for the first time in a while. I think the one that always catches me off guard is Animal Magazine's. (laughs) Yeah. We just record these things like quickly. We kind of like take an idea and really run with it. Yeah. And often it just comes off as like, why? Right. <laughs> and that's okay. Right. Well, the Animal Magazines one, I remember that I sent that to you. Like we had talked about it and then I sketched it up and I like sang and then I sent it to you and you sent a track back and it was so spooky. <laughs> I was just like, oh, I like this direction. So then I re- I redid my vocals on it, added some like reverb, I guess. And that's what stuck. But anyway, this isn't Animal Magazines. This is Sturdy Pet Names! So what do you have, Mike? What's your Sturdy Pet Name for the week? Well, 
my sturdy pet name is for a standard poodle, and its name is Superman. <laughs> I love it. And this is an actual animal that appeared on this series that I just discovered this morning. Okay. On HBO or HBO Max or, you know, whatever it is now. And it's called Hot Dog, but it's H-A-U-T-E, <laughs> like hot couture. Hot dog. Hot dog. Hoot dog. Hot dog. It's a competition show for dog grooming. And so they have three groomers and then they're presented with a dog and they have to groom it. And, you know, they get like a prompt or whatever. And then they present the dog and then they declare a winner and there's like a $10,000 prize for the winner. That sounds great. And Superman was one of the dogs that appeared in the show. Superman was this gorgeous white poodle and was made over to kind of have a sort of like Liz Taylor, like drag dog aesthetic. White diamond. For like a Hollywood, West Hollywood theme, you know, Mm -hmm. because it was the Hollywood episode. Like I used to start my mornings with whatever the late night comedians were talking about, you know, Mm -hmm. but lately that's just gotten so terrible that I don't want to start my day with that. Right. Not that it was ever good, but I just, you know, I'm, I'm looking for diversion content at this moment in time. And I have to say hot dog provided that and how (laughs) so highly recommended. This is actually more, this is the segment that's not actually about a sturdy pet name. This is a segment about, an insight into the process, and then also a television recommendation of Hot Dog, H-A-U-T-E, on HBO. Sturdy Pet Show. Sturdy Pet Show. There it is. Did you play more by the rules of the segment, Meredith? Do you have an actual sturdy pet name? I do. I do. This name is Pebbles, okay? And this was the name of my first goldfish. And the... Story behind this is actually I was a huge, huge, huge fan of watching VH1 for hours on end every day when I was a youngster, like six, seven years old. And I remember at the time seeing this music video by this artist named Pebbles. This was her her name. Her real name is actually Perry Arlette Reed, um, but she was a big presence like in 80s, 90s R&B. And so I saw her name on the you know the little always in the bottom left hand corner the beginning and the end of the song they'd always have like uh-huh. the artist the title of the song then the record it comes from and like the record label and the year give all that identifying information and i saw pebbles and i was like oh, that would be such a good name for a goldfish and lo and behold I went to my Sims Elementary Carnival, I believe, and I don't remember if it was like I won it or my brother won it, but we got a goldfish and went out and like got all the accoutrements. We had like a a big fish bowl and we bought like a little castle and all little stones for it. I'll be damned if that fish wasn't named Pebbles. My dream came true. That was beautiful, Meredith. Yeah. Now I just need to get a kitten and name it Fish Sticks and I'm two for two. Okay. Well, that's great. Yeah. I would say that in terms of pet names that pebbles is a name that definitely rocks yeah horns up it's like not a hoop it's a horn (laughs) right okay well i think that was a thrilling segment so my sturdy pet name is superman and my sturdy pet name is pebbles text on a you text on a we text on a who me kingdom and amelia creatures are our passion phylum cordata this spine is aquatic class echinoptera g-rafe and fishes are fave order scorpaniforms male cheeked fishes family psychrotidae bottom dwelling marine sculpins genus psychrolutes they usually love their oceans deep species psychrolutes marcidas what the hell is that thing oh he's cool he's just a blobfish Oh, the blobfish. Yeah, we, I mean, the blobfish, and this was kind of noted in a lot of the articles and videos I read. They've like kind of had a, I won't say a resurgence, but I'll say like a surge on the internet. I think when like these pictures of them surface and they're so silly looking because they just look like a big cartoon head with like a big nose. Right. And they're like in the a droopies. frowny, frowny face. Yeah. And like tiny little eyes and they're kind of like pink and gelatinous looking. 
So a lot of people probably have some awareness of what they look like. They essentially became famous for being like really ugly. I have to say that I've definitely seen them in a variety of memes mm-hmm. and just as like a silly picture that people will share. They are very, very silly looking. And I will say the pictures I've seen, they are indeed ugly. But as we will see by the end of this presentation, that that's kind of unfair. Oh. But before that, let's do tax facts. A lot of this, particularly since you just did the Electric Eel, which is a member as well of the class of Actinopterygii, or the ray-finned fishes. So we have encountered these fairly recently, like a couple weeks ago, a few weeks ago. So ray-finned, again, meaning like the fins themselves are going to be composed of kind of these tiny little bony spines that are then connected with like the membrane that then makes the full fin. And then we go into the order scorpaniforms and this is also known as the male cheeked fishes and i had to look this up and by male it's like male like postal service male is the word male cheeked i don't understand really where that comes from or why it's male cheeked instead of like plate of bone cheeked but essentially the male cheek is a plate of bone that runs across each cheek so you can kind of if you look up pictures of scorpion Paniforms, you kind of see they've got these flat cheeks, kind of, but you have to see them at the right angle. So there was actually this, like, I don't know what kind of fish this was. It was a scorpaniform. They had this image of this fish, but it was like from all these different angles and on like a white background. So it almost looked like this fish is like senior portrait. (laughs) (laughs) He's looking very good that day. (laughs) This is like as a basketball and like a trumpet. It was very sweet. He's got his bony cheek plate in this picture. Uh huh. He's got his baseball bat in the other. It's like a tie. Always like a checkered button down, you know. Okay, so that's the order the male cheeked fishes. Then we move into the family of Psychrotidae. And this is the bottom dwelling uh, marine sculpins. So I've actually heard of sculpin with a beer. It's like Ballast Point Brewing or something has like a sculpin beer. And it's got a sculpin, this kind of fish on the label of it. So I was like, oh, I know what a sculpin is because I'm a drinker. But otherwise, I did also have to look this up. So sculpins in general, they tend to be bottom dwelling. They're described as tadpole-like in that their heads are kind of fuller. And then that like, but the body kind of tapers off as it goes down to the flat tail hence the tadpole description i'd mentioned the small flat tails and then typically sculpins their pectoral fins are kind of so these ray fins they're smooth on the upper edge so like the top edge of the fin is just kind of like webbed but as you move to the bottom it's more like sharp rays so it's almost like the spines of the fin are kind of sticking out more prominently mm. and this is said to help them kind of anchor themselves in fast flowing water so this particular shape of this fin the morphology of this fin allows them somehow i guess to kind of battle the flow of the water and kind of stay stationary as opposed to being like carried along with it huh and so by the time we get to genus so psychrolutes again referring to deep sea dwelling creatures and they're also known as the fat-headed sculpins So these sculpins have big old bulbous heads and dwell along the ocean floor and um, typically in within like the Pacific Rim region. And yes, I looked up what the Pacific Rim refers to because it's another one of those things that I always like hear. And I'm like, okay, what does this mean? Right. It's essentially all the like the geographical areas that outline the Pacific Ocean. So this would be like the West Coast of the United States, North America, down into South America, and then over to the East Coast of Asia. Right. And... You know, like all like Australia, Tasmania, New Zealand. So these fish like to hang out there. And then when we get to the blobfish specifically, like I said, love to be in the waters, the deep waters off the coast of Australia, New Zealand, Tasmania. And they live at depths up to 2,000 to 3,900 feet deep. That's many fathoms below. Wow. (laughs) To refer again to the Little Mermaid. So very deep sea creatures. And again, this is kind of why there's not much info on the blobfish generally, because it's really hard to research creatures that live so deep down. 
not only because it's dark down there and it's hard to get the equipment down there to even begin to record them, but it's just really hard for humans or equipment to be that deep because the pressure at that level of the ocean is so high. We would be crushed at those depths. Yeah, completely. But for the fish, for our blobfish, they do just fine down there, obviously. But they are so deep that they don't have gas bladders like other fish, other bony fish have. So the gas bladders in other bony fish that possess them, essentially that's the mechanism they use to kind of regulate their buoyancy. So it's not like they're always swimming to kind of remain where they are in the ocean. They have actual control over their level of buoyancy to kind of help them suspend at the various levels of the ocean where they want to be. Sure. That makes sense. Sure. So the way it works with the blobfish being devoid of the gas bladder is that they actually themselves, like their flesh is this kind of gelatinous mass. It's slightly less dense than water itself. So this allows them to float just above the ocean floor in that benthic zone. Remember, we've talked about benthic zones. Yeah, I love the benthic zone. With our walrus friends, with our tusk shell friends. Yeah, bivalves. Bivalves. Crabs. Yeah. So they hang out just above this and essentially just kind of like, as far as eating, just kind of open and close their mouths and just kind of suck in any food that happens to be floating by. There's no like strike and release or there's no like active chasing after food or anything like that. They're essentially just feeding on the detritus that floats through the water at this depth. And I learned that this detritus actually has a very fun name. Marine snow. (laughs) So this marine snow essentially is just like all this like kind of crap that's floating down through the water that's just filtering down to these depths. And it often will contain kind of like decaying matter, sand, but there are also um, deep sea crustaceans, microscopic creatures like krill and things like that. So these blobfish just kind of open and close their mouths and chomp up all of this edible matter. Right. Yeah. That's why when we talk about some of these sea creatures and it's like, oh yeah. And then they release like 50,000 eggs into the ocean. It's Mm -hmm. because a lot of them are getting sucked up by things like the blobfish before they can become adults. Yes, exactly. That's a very good, important point to make for sure. So now we can kind of get to the injustice, I would say, that has been done to the blobfish because I had no idea about this. So everyone talks about how ugly they are and how crazy looking they are. And they are. I mean, they've got these big noses almost, these like protrusions from the front of their face and this frowny face and this like squishy, weird looking skin. But that's actually a result of bringing them up so quickly from the depths of the ocean to the surface. That lack of decompression destroys them bodily. So I'll put this up on the Instagram for this episode, but when you look at a side-by-side comparison of a blobfish in situ (laughs) and a blobfish that's been pulled up out of the ocean, they look completely different. It's like, their bodies are just like completely denatured. They lose any real sense of structure. It's kind of borderline upsetting what these fish go through to reach this stage that we all delight so much in saying is so ugly. Because down below, they just kind of look like normal fish. Yeah, there's something really severe here because it it looks like a normal fish with like some kind of fun spiny things. Yeah, you know? it just looks like a deep sea fish. Definitely a deep sea fish. Definitely one that's about to deliver my mail. Ah. And then through this process of essentially like torture and death, like it just. Ugh. Yeah, it's really I feel so bad. I never want to call them ugly again. I kind of feel like I need to like go on a crusade to save the, the reputation of the blobfish. Yeah, I do kind of like you as the person in the comments every time you see a blobfish mean and you're like, this creature is actually noble and beautiful. Attached as a photo of a blobfish in situ. <laughs> the process of removing them from their home is what causes them to deform. Poor blobfish. Hashtag stop looting nature. Hashtag blobfish justice. So, I mean, really, that's kind of all I have. And the reason for that 
not much is really known about them in terms of like how long they live or, you know, how they reproduce, how we make baby blobfish because they are down so deep. There's really no easy way to facilitate a study of them. Most frequent way we'll come across them is fishermen kind of pulling them up in nets as bycatch. It was like things that you find in your net that you weren't intending to catch. So all the kind of creatures that, oh, what is the word? It's like collateral damage, I guess, of fishing for a particular species. You often get other kinds of species that you weren't necessarily looking for. Right, right. And so once they've been pulled up from this depth, it's like, even if the fishermen were to be like, ugh, throwing this back, like the chances of them surviving and getting back down to the depths where they can survive and like, were they supposed to do like rebuild their bodies after they've been eviscerated due to lack of compression i doubt it <laughs> so yeah do you have any further quandaries about our blobfish fans i'm just so upset because i have to say that's a handsome fish and i'm just really once again just like furious at humanity but i'm gonna work through that and i'm gonna celebrate <laughs> the things about this that make it an interesting and beautiful creature and i'm gonna feel a little bit more well informed i think it's important to know your meme and i think that knowing background information about what it takes to render the image that is the meme is an important thing for all of us moving forward in this our 21st century oh mike that was that was beautiful and i think we should end it there because it's not going to get any better than that thank you blub blub (laughs) blub hi i'm blob You've established your colony. Nymphs abound. There's a constant source of food. And a constant source of water. Look at all you've accomplished. It must have been exhausting. Time for a vacation. But human travel agencies neglect the specific needs of the Blatodei family. Which is why Brain Clubby is thrilled to announce Roach Retreat, vacation packages for roaches. Roach Retreats offer packages to all the hottest roach destinations. New York City. Florida. Belize, Vienna, Kiev, and even Madagascar. Madagascar, where all the roaches can hiss together. Now's the time to get away. Book through the Brand Clubby web portal. Use code BUGBREAK20 for up to 20% off at checkout. What are we smelling in the feed bag today? I'm smelling a little bit of barley. Delicious. And a lot of bit of love. Oh, we're in the feed bag and it's full of love. Yep, that's what I'm smelling. That's great. Let's see if any of this love seeps through these questions. Yes, this sort of female pheromonal chorusing. (laughs) Sammy from Raleigh asks, which would you rather have, wings, hooves, or petty palps? Oh my gosh, what a question. Because, oh my gosh, how do I even begin to answer this? I mean, look. This is so hard, it's stressful. I think that just in terms of lifestyle, I don't really want to be any of the creatures that have petty pouts. Sure. So as much as I respect the wisdom that we have from those ancient creatures, I think I'm going to have to pass on having petty palps myself. Okay. I do appreciate them. I appreciate their versatility, though. And they seem to be a little bit more like, um, well, versatile than uh, wings or hooves. Because, like, hooves, you can't really, like, grab things with them. And I guess wings you could maybe kind But no, even wings. I guess for hooves or wings, you'd have to, like, use them in conjunction with one another to, like, pick something up. Whereas, like, a petty palp, I feel like there's, like, isn't there, like, a little bit more, like, a... I guess I'm trying to remember that. I feel like Petty Palp narrows you into a, a very limited list of creatures. Because there are the Clarissas, right? Clarissata, or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. With, like, spiders and scorpions and stuff. Well, no. Oh, my gosh. I'm, like, forgetting all of my arachnid 
I know. Or weren't some they're used for like sensation, others are used for locomotory organs. Locomotion. Yeah, but I think that the pedipalp is a specific type of Clarissa or something. So yeah, I guess it's not, they aren't really work. I keep thinking of them as like pincers, but that's not right. I think that they're pincers on the scorpion though. Right. So I guess that that's the thing is that they are different things on different creatures. But I think that in this, would you rather have that like you have one form of them, you can't like morph between pedipalps, you know, because by the same logic, then you'd be able to morph between hooves or morph between wings. And I don't think that we're assuming that. Yeah, it would be like trying to morph between like a penguin wing and a heron wing. Right. And those are two very different wings. They're very different wings. Or between parasodactyla, odd-toed undulates, and artiodactyla, even-toed undulates. Right. We don't have that freedom. Okay, you've set me straight, Mike. I agree with you. I don't want a petty palp. And you know what? I don't... I don't think I want a hoof because it's loud. You know, you can't really do much sneaking. It's too much clip-clop to be sneaky. Yeah. So I think wings. I think it's just hard to turn down the possibility of flight. Right. You know, recognizing that there are flightless birds. Right. Which I probably would be if I were to have wings. Because it's not like all of a sudden my body would like become hollow boned. Sure. And sphincterless. So I, I, what I'm sensing here is that, yeah, wings seem to be optimum. I agree, Meredith. Still a member, diehard member of Undulate Squad. But I just think that given the opportunity between wings and hoofs, I think even a hoofed creature would desire the experience of flight. Yes. Yes. A fish position. Wings. Flap, 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 flap. Ding, ding, flap, flap, ding, flap, ding. Okay. Next question. Captain from New York City wants to know, given the opportunity to ride an ostrich, would you? <laughs> Whoa. <sighs> uh, Probably not. Yeah, exactly. I was like, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say no. Because I have had the privilege of seeing at least like a few videos of people being chased by ostriches. And the way they run, they've got their wings like outstretched, trying to look intimidating. And they do look intimidating. It just, you know, it looks like a bird, first of all, that doesn't want to even like be in close proximity with a human, let alone be like saddled with a human. They just don't seem like they really have much of a tolerance for bullshit. And I would say, who needs to ride an ostrich? That's bullshit. Yeah. But I know people do it. I don't know. I just feel like um, kind of I'm kind of a I'm not a small person and I've ridden the backs of a few beasts. Mm -hmm. And I don't know that an ostrich is sturdy enough to handle, you know, all this man, (laughs) first of all. And then like, second of all, I just feel like I would want to be able to kind of bail very quickly. You know what I mean? Right. I feel like I would probably not sit astride the ostrich. I imagine that I would do a bit of a side saddle moment, you know, (laughs) and just be like prepared to dismount, you know, be like wearing pads and a helmet. Oh my gosh. That phrase about like the ostrich being strong enough to handle all of this man. It makes me think it wasn't like Shania Twain, like strong enough to be my man. Whoever that was, but like, are you ostrich enough for all this, man? Yeah. Hot new hit country song. We can add that to the list along with um, <laughs> the Cetacean Nations track from Baleen Life. Yes. Oh, I love Baleen Life. Yeah. So I'm I'm thinking the official position here is no. Yeah. <laughs> Captain. Yeah. That's a firm no. Yeah. A pass. I'll watch somebody else ride it, but I will not yeah. do that. I, I would rather watch them from afar. They're so interesting, like, as birds. They're just kind of funny. Okay. Ding, ding, ding. Ding, ding, ding. Well, Peter from St. Petersburg asks, what's the quickest way to start developing a romantic relationship with a Desmond? Oh, I wish I knew because I would be in their little dens right now in there with them if I knew the answer to this question. Wow. Well, I would... I would bring them delicious grubs and things to eat, and I would let a dragonfly alight on my nose, and maybe that would, like, entice them. Oh, look how she's just like me. Dragonflies alight on my nose, too. You'd sneak him in your bag (laughs) to see the ballet with you? Yes! Oh! 
Russian ballet, of course. It would be like a fun, like, Stravinsky. We'd go to the New York City Ballet. There's lots of Stravinsky that happens there. I bet Peter from St. Petersburg would also love some of the Tchaikovsky ballets. I'm just saying. Of course. Oh, of course. Of course. So, well, what about you, Mike? What do you... <laughs> I mean, I... How would you romance the Desmond? I was, you know, I was just thinking a sort of maybe coffee date or a beer date, you know, mm. um, just to kind of get to know each other. And then, I don't know, probably go for some, like, traditional... I mean, I don't know. It was, it's just hard to follow up your... You seem to have really figured it out. Maybe I'm going to steal some of your moves, like with the dragonfly. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I mean, obviously the ballet. I already said that. Mm-hmm. Like, we would definitely, you know, talk about Russian thinkers and emoters of the late 1800s, you know? Just, like, feel lots of feelings. I'm into that. Like, talk about who's your favorite Russian symphonist. Shasti. <laughs> if he said that, I would ask him to leave. <laughs> At that point, God. you would shut it down real quick if that Russian Desmond referred to Shostakovich as Shasti. Yeah, I will not abide that. <laughs> I will, however, abide a Shostakovich because that's funny. But like, <laughs> Shasti is not cool. Like, you don't sound cool. Like, you don't seem cool. You're not like cool to know what that is. That's like when people, you know how sometimes you receive conversations with people where they assume that you know some sort of lingo? Yes. You definitely don't, and there's no way you would. That was the entire beginning of your (laughs) moth presentation. (laughs) Sure, sure. Fair, yeah. It's the experience of reading moth articles, which is what I'm trying to communicate through this podcast. Right. It's like when you go to see a Cunningham Company show, it's like you get like sort of the spirit of dance. Right. You don't necessarily remember like what exactly happened, but you leave feeling as if you've been like, that was dance. You right. Know? Right. That's what I'm trying to do, but with the experience of like reading Wikipedia articles about moths. Right. It's all, I mean, it's all you can do without spending days and days and days looking up every vocab word that comes at you. Yeah, I also think it's really humbling to just be reminded that there's just uh, so much to learn, you know? There's so much to discover, and if you just kind of start doing it, then you figure it out, you know? And it's sort of a, like, blessing for initiative. Mm -hmm. And then also, I think equally important is the skill to kind of just leave behind and be like, well, this is all I'm going to really ever know about. Right. You know? Right. You got to draw the line somewhere. We just wouldn't have lives at all. Well, it's less about us having lives. It's more about, like, us maintaining our amateurism, really. (laughs) Very important. It must be preserved at all costs. (laughs) Yeah. So I guess, Peter, I would probably engage with conversations like that with the Desmond. Mm -hmm. I feel like the Desmond that I want to be with would be speaking that language. I hear that. I hear that. So definitely dragonflies, definitely ballet, and definitely intellectual conversations. Mm. Mm. Ding, ding, ding. Ding, ding, ding. Well. Wow. Yeah. We've really been all over the place this episode. This was good. This was a good one. I feel like we really worked through a lot of our, I don't know, circumstances. I think this is, as always, healing through animals. I'm happy to share this hot dog show. I really expect you to watch it, Meredith. I will. to say, episode one is great, and I've, you know, kind of saw episode two. We got into episode three a little bit. Oh, ooh, and I watched the show that you recommended, the Earth to Ned, or whatever it's called. Oh, and? Love it. (laughs) That's so cute. Love it. Five out of five. (laughs) Yeah. For those unaware, it's a, like, Henson Studios creation. So it's a lot of great creature imagery and puppets and things that don't, like, exist as far as we know in our world. Because they're, like, aliens. But lots of cute creature happenings on there. I really love the clods. Those little, like, teeth. Yeah, the clods are adorable. Fuzzy, teethy things. (laughs) Yeah, they're like the band and then they just appear. Yeah. (laughs) So funny. There was one where the clod said an artist's name. It was like Botticelli or something. Of course. And they were like going through and naming the art pieces and like, over there, is that a... And then the clod went like, Botticelli! (laughs) 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 Be funny. Be funny. Well, check out these shows and more. 
Yeah, and don't forget to email us, animalfanclubpod at gmail.com. We love to hear from you. Bye. Bye. Animal Fan Club is created and produced by us, Meredith Jurgens and Mike Luno. We also create all our original music and sonic experiences. Send us your listener feedback questions to animalfanclubpod at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram at animalfanclubpod, at Meredith Jurgens and at Mike underscore Luno. And don't forget to rate and review our podcast on your favorite app that really helps us out. Thanks for listening to our show. We hope it makes your heart and spirit glow. We'll be here next week for another meeting of the Animal 